Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. I'm joined by Real Clear Defense contributor John Waters. John, good to have you here. Hey, John, good to be here. Today, we are speaking with Matthew Cole, the author of a new book, Code Over Country The Tragedy and Corruption of SEAL Team Six. Cole is an investigative journalist at The Intercept and has covered national security since 2005, traveling extensively in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and the Middle East to cover American conflicts and U.S. intelligence operations. In the book, Cole details a long history of alleged wrongdoing, including war crimes by members of the Navy's SEAL Team 6, and efforts to cover up that behavior, demonstrating a fundamental flaw in the unit's culture. Officially designated Naval Special Warfare Development Group, or DEVGRU, everyone knows them as SEAL Team 6, and they are far from secret spawning a whole genre of tell-all books by former members and fictionalized accounts of dramatic missions portrayed in films and television. Has public hero worship and the military's extensive reliance on these highly skilled operators over the past two decades allowed them to be largely immune to oversight, obeying a different set of rules? Is there a problem with SEAL Team culture? Matthew Cole, welcome to Hot Wash. Thanks for having me, guys. So first, why don't you just kind of lay out the the thesis? It, it really the book covers the the arc of of SEAL Team Six and gives us kind of that background in Vietnam, and then brings it up to the global war on terror and and uh, some of the activities during that period as well. But outline for us how you see the central question uh, of the book. Well, uh, the the book grew out of a uh, long investigation that I did for The Intercept several years ago, which was grew out of sort of post 9-11 reporting about problems in JSOC and SEAL Team 6 in particular. Um, and the more I, I dug, the more I, I scratched um, and found underneath the surf- surface that the uh, problems inside SEAL Team 6 were not limited to um, one or two events of, of criminal misconduct on a battlefield, but that there was this sort of larger um, ethical uh, cultural flaw um, inside the command. And one of the things that the book uh, tried to answer, uh, one of the questions it tried to answer and explore was whether this was um, endemic to, whether this was something that grew after 9-11 as a consequence of 20 years of war, sort of a blank check, or whether there was something deeper um, that went back actually to the beginning of um, what what has become the Navy SEALs. Um, and I think the what the book lays out and demonstrates is, is that there is a, a, you know, a sort of a fundamental flaw or an ethical uh, flaw in SEAL culture. Not that it's always been so, or that it's always been uh, run amok, but it was always there, sort of like a, a low-grade uh, fever or cold or some kind of virus that um, got worse over time because it was never addressed. Um, and what we experienced as, you know, what the U.S. experienced was after 9-11 was the most, um, you know, it's literally an unprecedented amount of war for a very small group of men. Um and so there was nothing to look back on and 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 assess or prepare um, for how the exposure to war and the amount of war um, might affect some of the ethical and moral failings inside the unit. And so they, you know, metastasized. 
And, and, and so the, I mean, the title of the book is specifically focusing on SEAL Team Six. There's of course multiple SEAL teams. There's a. Do you see a a West Coast East Coast divide between the teams that are out of Coronado versus uh, Six, which is out of Virginia Beach? Um, I, I mean, were you, you're really specifically talking about Six, or just to kind of limit the scope of our discussion. Yeah. So the, the, the best way to frame it uh, for your listeners is, is that the book is about SEAL Team 6 because it's, the, it's America's, it's arguably America's best known unit, certainly the most um, heralded military unit of the last, you know, the last generation and, and post 9-11 um, era. But Navy, SEAL Team 6 is composed of Navy SEALs who start, all of them go through BUDS. They all go through and start at the regular teams. And that's the pool in which they they draw from. And so while SEAL Team 6 is, you know, the elite of the elite, they still rely on and take from the bigger uh, population of Navy SEALs. And so you can't tell the history of SEAL Team 6 without bringing in some parts of the earlier versions um, and the, the larger versions of the more general SEALs. So, John, what was your take on the book? How did you see the the central question? Yeah, Matthew, thanks for joining us. You go back to the beginning of SEAL Team 6. That's where the inquiry starts for you. Uh, you talk about Navy SEAL and Commander Dick Marcinko, who passed away recently. You talk that he recruited pirates, rogues, outlaws, men who would have had a hard time staying out of legal trouble as civilians if they hadn't been in the military. Tell me about that time and about your questions surrounding. Sure. One of the things that um, I was sort of pointed to in my reporting was to go look at what the psychological profiling and makeup was of the original members of SEAL Team 6. And one of the things that I, I tracked down the original uh, psych to the unit, Dr. Michael Whitley, um, I spoke to some of the uh, first members of SEAL Team 6 and uh, some of the SEAL officers who were in Naval Special Warfare um, at the time, and Dick Marcinko uh, himself, uh, who spoke on the record at great length um, for the book. And one of the things that uh, became apparent was at the beginning, there was very little psychological profiling um, or uh testing going on to determine where some of these men fit on a essentially a, a sociopathic spectrum. And so one of the things that was startling to hear from uh, the first shrink, uh, Dr. Michael Whitley, was there were you know quite a number of sociopaths in the original uh, group of SEAL Team 6. There were also, by the way, let's have the, the very important caveat that there were many, many great guys, many great SEALs. Right. Um, this, this is something that comes up like throughout the book is you have people say like 95% of the people there are, you know, believe in the mission, obey the laws, obey the rules, you know, and, and, are, and are there to do to do the work, which is dangerous, is on the edge of legality in a lot of instances in terms of, you know, uh, insertion behind lines and, you know, dealing with civilians and dealing in very complex situations. So we're, we're not, you know, even throughout the book, the people you're interviewing are not casting kind of this wide aspersion that everybody in the unit is, is, uh, is, you know, breaking the rules or going beyond what, sh what we should expect of them. No, but the, 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 the real issue is, is that in a unit like this, where you, they are working and living on the edge following 
the you know keeping to and behind the ethical and moral lines becomes critical because what happens is is that it's just so easy to go over um, and and start to to essentially um, the the good order that the breakdown of good order and discipline becomes um, pretty quick. Um, so one of the things that that we that I saw at the beginning was. And, and this is something that really startled me was in my interviews with Marcinko. Um, Marcinko said, you know, later in his life, very late in his life, he finally sort of came to this was about as much self-awareness um, as uh, I think he was probably capable of. And I quote him in the book saying, but he said, you know, it occurred to me later. This is after describing how he had created the unit as a mafia, that th- that this was a mafioso he was the godfather of the Don. He controlled everything. He kept everything in-house. That nothing was bigger than the unit. That was the, the most important thing, was keeping the identity and the fealty to the unit and its mission as it was being stood up. But he said, you know, it occurred to me that if I was fucked up, the unit was fucked up. And one of the things that gets lost in, you know, until – one of the things that code of the country, code over country is – is I think a very necessary and uh, correction to the sort of hagiography of SEAL Team Six and um, Navy Naval Special Warfare, which is frequently written either by people who are inside and have been SEALs um, or people who are cheerleading. And so there actually hasn't been a very objective history of SEAL Team Six in particular. And here was Marcinko acknowledging that his DNA is the blueprint for the unit. And Marcinko was a lot of things, but he was a very troubled person. I mean, he ended up as a you know a convicted felon uh, for stealing uh, from the Navy, and that was just you know one of the many things that he you know there was a lot of misconduct um, and criminality in his career. And so when you hear him saying, "Look, I created the unit in my own image," it's you know the unit professionalized and it improved after Marcinko left, but the imprint was there. And that's really important that we go, you know, you can go back and you look at history and you figure out how how things started and it gives you a sense of where you are today. And so what you can see is that the problems, the ethical failures, um, you know, that edge, that that razor's edge that they live on is always present. And so they they have to be, um, you know, the leadership and the officers have to be at all times, there has to be sort of a vigilance um, to prevent bad behavior and criminal misconduct. And I think after 9-11, there just clearly was a, was a huge breakdown. It, I'll agree with that 100%, Matthew. It falls on leaders to maintain vigilance, to maintain good order and discipline, uh, to correct misbehavior, correct toxic leadership beneath them. I guess a question I have, though, is, you know, when Marcinko says, this is... This is a, I'm a godfather, or this is a mafia. He uses these kind of figurations of speech. I don't know that they're meant to be taken literally. Uh, I worked for many Marines who went by call signs. Their call signs might be things like warlord or godfather. I don't think they're, they were warlords or literal godfathers. I mean, how do you respond to someone, say, who comes from the service? We have a very educated audience many veterans, many members, active military, who look at this and kind of say, I know what he was getting at. Well, it, it's a fair question. And within the context, right, this is still a uh, military service. These are uniform uh, members of the military. He was a, a officer. Um, I think that within 
both the culture of big Navy and then the culture even within that of naval special warfare, um, Marcinko stood out. I mean, he stood out with in great extremes for his willingness to buck and break the rules. You know, there's a, a within SEAL culture, there is this phrase, you know, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. Right. And and so there's this um, it's military wide, by the way, cut, cut, cutting. Well, the SEALs, the, the, the SEALs like to take uh, credit for it. So, you know, I didn't research it with my book, but if they've stolen it, it wouldn't be the first thing that they've sort of, you know, falsely taken credit for. Um but the, the the point is, is that Marcinko stood out even within a role culture um, in standing up a unit. And the one of the things that I think your question is fair, but it doesn't address something, which is in very small insular units, especially elite ones, what happens to the cultural drift and identity that's created? Um, that's something that exists only there, not, I mean, the, it's specific to that unit, right? It's not, Delta has one of its own, the Rangers have, you know, certainly each unit and and, and the further you get up the, the tier ranking, um, the smaller, more elite, they all have identities. SEAL Team 6 had one that was very specific and it came as about as close as one would describe to a mafia. Um, I mean, this is not, we're not talking about um, just the willingness to uh, buck the rules for how they operated or trained, but everything down to, you know, there's a, there's a difference between um, figuring out ways to outsmart the Navy's bureaucracy to um, get uh, material and training supplies as needed fast, right? That's part of Marcinko's genius. I mean, one of the things that he did, for example, was um, when they built the base at Damneck, he put in a pool and he made sure that instead of having it as 50 feet, he put it in as 49 feet so that it wouldn't be used on the weekends or in off hours by other members of the Navy for, um, you know, high school uh, swim meets, right? And that's very clever. But there also was the use of uh, SEAL Team 6 contracts to justify uh, fake procurement you know, of grenades so that he could pad his his retirement fund right the, the the system was ripe for abuse and if you had the wrong person or the wrong group of small people they could exploit it so you know again it may not be the literal mafioso again it is you know we're still talking about um, men who serve and and wear a uniform and and by are any definition patriotic but that doesn't prevent them from unfortunately mimicking uh, some of the behaviors of, of what he described as, as a mafia. And I want to stick with Marcinko for a moment. Of course, the author of the Rogue Warrior book, uh, among other things, certainly a personality many have attempted to understand. It sounds like you got close to him a little bit at least. Uh, what can you tell us about Dick Marcinko? Well, I think, um, you know, when he passed away, the, 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 one of the best descriptions I heard of him was given by Admiral McRaven, who described him as a colorful character, right? That was the, the nice <laughs> euphemism that you say <laughs> in, the, in the days yeah. in, in the days after someone has died. I think and I think that Marcinko uh, deservedly gets an enormous amount of credit for um, what he did to create SEAL Team 6 in the time that he did. It was an incredibly quick turnaround. He made it very effective. Um, as a unit, you know, there's there, he deserves all of that credit, but it's also important to not overlook the fact that he was an inveterate liar. Um, he was a convicted felon. 
He was, uh, I think, by by many uh, descriptions, probably uh, a sociopath, and that is, by the way, um, is not uncommon in how we recruit from special operations. There's a spectrum, and he fell uh, pretty pretty hard towards uh, sociopathy. Um, and you know, I think that that makes anything that he says, uh, you know, something that you have to double and triple check, right? I mean, uh, according to to Dick Marcinko after SEAL Team Six, when he set up um, Red Cell, which was a counterterrorism um, defensive uh, train, not train, a defensive unit that was meant to probe uh, Navy uh, installations um, and and ships to test their defenses. You know, the story that he told sort of secretly or tried to tell secretly was that in fact it was a truer version of SEAL Team 6, that it had the authority to conduct assassinations and counterterrorism operations. And that was, for instance, one of the the tall tales that I had to run down. Um, and it took a long time, but ultimately I determined that it was simply not true. It was a figment of his imagination and his aspirations for what he was creating. And that gives you a sense of of the man, right? Very capable, but you're not sure where um, the truth ends and the lie begins. So I want to, uh, John, if you're okay, I want to, I want to kind of bring it up to the war on terror and the modern, the the post Marcinko era, the later oversight of the SEAL team. So we don't have the Marcinko as this as this character involved anymore. But what we do have is an incredible tempo being placed on a very small number of super highly trained and highly skilled individuals in extremely complex battle environments. Um, Civilian casualties are a huge issue. The other side, definitely not playing by the laws of war. And a lot of the things that you end up talking about all kind of flow from this incident on Roberts Ridge and have to do essentially with the dehumanization of the enemy, of mutilation of corpses afterwards, trophy photos, of of an attitude in war zones towards uh, the rules that that regular units would be held to a, a much stricter standard. Uh, but I think that what we're asking special forces to do is is often super complex. So sometimes it's fog of war, but sometimes after the fact, uh, what you're describing is a punitive, uh, you know, desecration of corpses is really corpses is really one of the big ones. Talk about Roberts Ridge, uh, you know, just in brief as an incident, and how that kind of flows into a number of the incidences and attitudes that you're talking about. Sure. Um, Roberts Ridge uh, became, uh, as it's now known, as a battle uh, on a Afghan mountain uh, called Takar Gar uh, in the east in uh, March of 2002, and it was uh, the last push by U.S. U.S. military uh, after the initial invasion to push out what was left of the Taliban and Al Qaeda um, from a particular valley uh, near the Pakistan border, um, and part of the uh, SEAL Team 6 element that was in the country at the time was sent up to do um, reconnaissance and scouting and to get control of essentially established observation points at a bunch of uh, um, peaks on a ridgeline. 
it was it ended up being a, a pretty horrific uh, battle. There were seven seven uh, U.S. servicemen, including a, one member of SEAL Team Six uh, and a uh, Air Force combat controller who was attached to the SEALs, who died um, in what was effectively landing a series of helicopter landings uh, on an established enemy position, um, and and were you know suffered basically from an ambush. Uh, the event, which was sort of the worst, um, the first really bad battle that U.S. forces saw. It was um, for SEAL Team 6 and for the generation of SEALs that were in SEAL Team 6 at the time. It was their first real exposure to um, up-close combat. It was horrific. It was, you know, 17 hours uh, at 10,000 feet foot altitude um, in uh, thigh-high snow um, it completely outnumbered. It was a terrible condition uh, con- and setup and scenario. Um, and what happened in the aftermath, to, to, to try to make it as simple as possible, is that one of the SEALs, uh, Neil Roberts, uh, he fell out of the back of the helicopter while it was still above ground. He was uh, grabbed by the enemy. He was uh, quickly executed. Um, they attempted to uh, decapitate him. Um, the team subsequently uh his teammates subsequently viewed uh, the body at bagram uh, most of them were brought in and and shown um there were a, a, there was a lot of recriminations within the special operations community over what had happened on the mountain because there was uh, we now know um john chapman who was you know an air force cct um and ultimately won a medal of honor um was left behind mistakenly uh, mistakenly left for dead uh, by the SEAL team, um, not intentionally, but uh, errantly. And he ultimately survived his original wounds and got up and fought for another hour. Um, and so there were a lot of recriminations internally about who was at fault that day and, and as it is when any tragedy happens. But there were sort of two lasting effects, or maybe three, you could you could argue from that battle that affected um, especially the beginning of the wars in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. The first was was that there was a basic simple thing, which was that Neil Roberts was the first of, of SEAL Team 6 to die after 9-11 in those conflicts. And it, it hit the team very hard. The manner in which his body was treated hit them especially hard. And so there, um, in, um, and I, the, there's not a question about this or any dispute. In the days and weeks and months after um, uh, Roberts Ridge, um, the SEALs, many SEALs within Red Squadron, Red Team, um, conducted what they uh, were later euphemi- euphemistically referred to as revenge ops to go after the guys that got uh, Neil Roberts um, and sort of, you know, an eye for an eye that, that you know, it, it's crude and it certainly was not true for everyone in the unit. Um, but it was for several of them, some of whom uh, became very prominent within the unit um, that mentality fed from deployment to deployment um, after that point. And that's one of the uh, un, you know, that was one of, that's part of the code of silence that was within SEAL Team 6. And early on when I was reporting this, um, some of the veteran SEALs from the unit described watching as during each of those initial deployments, the line would get pushed further and further away from, uh, you know, the behavior would be further and further away from the line of what was acceptable. And so that there was, you know, I don't know what you want to call it. You want to call it vengeance. You want to call it bloodlust. You want to call it boredom. Um, I don't call it fog of war. I think um, 
fog of war refers to something that is a little bit different in terms of determining uh, after the fact what happened, um, but not why. Right. Well, well like I'm thinking of the wedding party shootings where a number of civilians died. You know, th- there's a question of incorrectly assessing shoot no shoot. You know, versus right after an enemy has fallen or after an enemy is under your control, you know, the decisions that you make after that, you know, it, right. it, it seems those are, those are really different questions. And yeah. So that yeah, when sorry. I say fog and of war, that's really what I'm talking about uh, versus what, what's happening after the comp. Roberts Ridge. So, so you had this, this sort of revenge um, and the psychological toll of this horrific violence that um, these Al Qaeda fighters had perpetrated on a seal. Those um, affected the guys who were there extraordinarily. Then there was this issue of whether or not the SEALs had left behind their their teammate, John Chapman. And that becomes another part of, and I would say actually in a sense, a bigger part of what I call code over country, which is that when there is um, something wrong happens, something goes bad, you know, it's a mistake. No one has ever accused the SEALs of purposefully leaving John Chapman behind. There is an inability of SEAL Team 6 and the larger Navy SEAL community to accept that they did anything wrong. And so what happens then is the inevitable um, contortions to uh, verbal and otherwise to retell the story in a way that gives them prominence and a a position at the place of, you know, uh, nothing short of heroic. And uh, that's where the trouble really begins because it, you start from there and the, the, it's just sort of like story after story, um, event after event, you have um, a lot of lies and they add up. And so, you know, one of the things that that I, I came across was trying to figure out how much some of these guys at SEAL Team 6, especially of the officers, believe the things that they say even internally um, because they've just been accepted as true. Or if if it's just, you know, the, the determination to, as what one officer um, would say, is protect the brand. You know, protecting the brand of the Navy SEALs was a very, um, first of all, it's a very corporate thing to say. And um, it was something that was very important on the inside. It's, I want to read Code Over Country as an invitation to be more curious about SEAL Team 6 and about SEALs writ large. I want to take the book as an opportunity to get past Hollywood narratives, to get past headlines. That's the best approach. I think it's harder for me to read it as one transcript to get a clear, straight line narrative from Dick Marcinko to present day Navy SEALs and SEAL Team Six. Because after all, I mean, Dick Marcinko, the writer of The Rogue Warrior, 30 years later, roughly, is replaced by Admiral McRaven, the author of Make Your Bed, a totally different leader, a totally different unit, I would say. Uh, tell me I'm wrong, Matthew. Well, McRaven was never um, commander of SEAL Team 6, for one. He, he took over JSOC and he took over SOCOM. So um, the book highlights um, in great detail uh, Admiral McRaven's struggles as the head of JSOC and the head of SOCOM with SEAL Team 6 and the problems and criminality within SEAL Team 6. So in fact, you know... I appreciate what you're you're asking, and I think that all of history is complicated and messy. And so I'm I you know would never stress the idea that you could just take um, Marcinko's story from um, the 70s and 80s and extrapolate it and bring it um, 35 40 years forward. It would 
um, defy the fact that all of this other um, experience and a series of events occurred. Um, but if you go back, you can start, you can really see the seeds, right? McRaven was fired from SEAL Team 6 because- By Marcinko. By Marcinko, because why? Because he stood up to the senior enlisted officer of Blue Team. In other words, the officer in charge told the senior enlisted that there was a problem. It was particular with, with um, travel vouchers on a training uh, trip out west. And the uh, senior enlisted of Blue Team threw- uh, McRaven stuff out of their shared hut and kicked him out. I mean, he, you know, uh, completely neutered him in front of his men and sent him to stay with, um, the younger enlisted guys. And when they got back from the trip, Marcinko fired him. Okay. The message was unmistakable to everyone there. The senior enlisted are in charge. They lead. Right. And so that was 1983, and it's not to say that there weren't, again, SEAL Team 6 made enormous growth um, and progress and professionalization as it grew up after Marcinko. But when McRaven is now a four-star at SOCOM and a three-star at JSOC, he's dealing with the same cultural problems in Afghanistan with um, the canoeing photos and how they were going to police it to do it so that they could not have a incident. And, and these are creators. photos of desecration of corpses essentially you, yeah and, and yeah. it was a and it was essentially a, a um kind of like a form of of entertainment and sport for some of the for the operators in taking the photos and there was a problem and so they um redesigned some of the rules for post uh operation uh uh like after action some, intelligence gathering they, they, yeah they, after they've action got to document photos. the scene like it's you yes, know like it, it's a homicide in, in, in la or detail. something yeah yeah that's right it, and it and it and it ended the it ended the 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 practice fairly quickly and McRaven helped put that in place um and then we go back and, and i think there are other sections of the book that detail when McRaven's in charge and they have problems seal team six has problems and he does the you know an unprecedented thing he comes in and he he holds an admiral's mask at seal team six because there had been uh, lying and, a, and an effort to cover up the, the accidental death of Linda Norgrove in 2010 in Afghanistan on a hostage rescue. And, you know, I, I guess my point is, is that as a uh, investigative journalist, but as an author, I, I can't help but note that this seed of a problem that involved McRaven in 1982 or 83 with, with Marcinko has grown. It's different, you know, in 2010. It has a different context, but it's the same. It's the same problem. You know, he identified the same issue, and so um, I think what the I think the, the the idea here, what I hope readers get out of this book, is is less some sort of condemnation of any group or the SEALs. I think you know most of, and I make this point in the book. My sources were members of SEAL Team Six, um, most of whom served at least two decades at the unit. Um, we're talking. We're not talking about kids. These were veterans who had tried. These are not inexperienced people who are overcome by the horrors of war once they get there. These are seasoned people. These were SEAL Team Six leaders, naval officers, and very senior enlisted uh, SEALs who tried, who witnessed this stuff, who tried their best inside to fix it, and after a decade of frustration, turned to a reporter, um, and so. It's, but it's by no means a condemnation of the unit. What I'm trying to highlight is is that there are officers and people in charge who are responsible for 
um, holding themselves and their men accountable. They failed, and so the problem grows, and that needs to be addressed. That's a, that's just you know, it, officers are you know commissioned by law to uphold good order and discipline. Um, and uh, you know, the truth is, is that they've in that way they have failed their men. They have failed the men of SEAL Team Six and Navy SEALs by not holding them accountable themselves or 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 those who are um, you know. Uh, accused of mis, you know, accused of misconduct. So, you've taken us kind of to present day, Matthew. Here we are. The war in Afghanistan ostensibly concluded. The war on terror continuing to an extent. Where is the unit today, and where does it go next, in your view? Those are two really good questions. Um, I'll take one at a time. Where the unit is now is absolutely um, trying to figure out what its identity is. So it's done 20 years of counterterrorism, um, but it, it, we are moving uh, away from counterterrorism as uh, sort of the, the field of battle. And so one of the things that SEAL Team 6 probably needs to go to, it, it may already have, although in my conversation with people at the Pentagon as recently as uh, this past winter, uh, said that they were a little bit slower. SEAL Team 6 has been slower than Delta to transition back to irregular warfare, um, counterproliferation, for instance, uh, which was an area that SEAL Team 6 had a very special uh, and had a niche for 25 years, uh, but largely uh, uh did very little during the, the height of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. So I think that they have to transition away from um, the total focus on counterterrorism. They simply aren't going to be that many operations. Um, you know, when it was created, it was meant for one-off uh, hostage rescues and operations, not uh, night after night. And that clearly night after night is not going to happen anymore. So that's um, part of the transition. I think in terms of where they're going to go, um, that is an open question. I, I think that there is um, a real, I mean, you know, I would describe the, the SEAL community and SEAL Team 6 community as being 95% fantastic and com combined the um, silent majority. Um, there is unfortunately a very small portion of the officer corps um, and the senior enlisted who have sort of risen to the top off of this lack of accountability. Um, and that plays out in ways, you know, it's like having a virus in the body. You know, you may have trouble with your with your knee one day, you know, uh, or in your leg, and the next thing you know, you've got a problem in your heart. Um, it's hard to know um, how it's going to affect you if you don't treat it. Um, I think, you know, there's. I think I'm going to be reporting some some new stuff at the Intercept this week or next week, um, connected to the uh, recent death at Buds. I think that um, I think that what this book is is shows us where we how the SEALs got to where they've gotten to. If you take the most elite unit of an organization, the one that everyone looks up to and aspires to, and you, you find two decades of cultural um, problems, you know, the problem grows and, and, and gets bigger and wider. And I think that's where we are now. And I think uh, the real issue is, is, is the Pentagon, is the Navy, is Congress going to do anything to um, fix uh, what is, I think, a, a broken ship? Um, it, it needs it needs new leadership. It needs, um, I think, you know, three times in, in SEAL Team Six's history, the Pentagon has floated the idea of getting rid of SEAL Team Six, um, and I think uh, 
there's an open question. The question needs to be asked. I don't know that the answer needs to be that it needs to be uh, dismantled, but um, actually you might appreciate this, John, in the past, the, one of the, the last plan in 2009 was to flood SEAL Team 6 with Marines. Um, and one of the reasons, there, there were two reasons for it. One was Marines are part of the service. And so it was uh, easier on that side, but also that there was um, some acknowledgement that at the core of the Marine training in ethics, that that was something that was firm. And that was something that um, the SEALs didn't have and SEAL Team 6 in particular. Um, obviously, it didn't come to pass, um, but it gives you some insight into some of the cultural issues that have still have to be addressed. It's a very young unit yeah. by comparison to, to compare it to the Marines. It's a very young unit. Yeah. Well, I recommend people read the book. I, I think that as John suggested, it's it's a the the stance to look at it is really asking a lot of questions uh, because it, it, it both and first of all it's it's very well written and shows a lot of depth of sources and it touches on a lot of parts of what's really been a, a you know critical part of our military efforts over especially over the past 20 years but uh, it it asks these kind of multi-layered questions of you've got a unit that's designed to be highly independent. You've got a unit that's designed to be ultra aggressive. You've got a unit that's designed to uh, problem solve in ethically complicated and murky situations. You've, you've got a unit that really is tasked with stuff that is extremely difficult as are the other tier one assets. You know, we just don't hear as much from Delta you know, uh, and that's, and that the flip side of that is the whole ironic part of this story is that for quiet professionals, there's a lot of books about the seals and the public eats it up and they, you know, they eat up a kind of popular culture version of the seals. But I don't, I don't see a lot of people asking these questions of, you know, what is the psychological strain on this of, of that kind of tempo? What, you know, and how do you get a unit that really is driven by senior NCOs uh, versus officer oversight? How do you balance that culture with the need to, you know, right the ship when uh, people make bad decisions uh, or, or have, you know, inappropriate or illegal behavior that's going to reflect on the rest of the military and, 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 and put American troops at risk. So I, I I think it's, I I think it's a great book. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Matthew. I I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me both. Thank you for your questions. Uh, I appreciate it. I, um, I, I hope, um, you know, I I appreciate you giving, uh, reading the book at all. I, I didn't write it to become popular or to make friends. Um, it's just really important to understand that the, um, uh, this book grew out of the frustration of, um, very senior, um, very accomplished members of the SEAL community, particularly the SEAL Team 6 community. Um, so that it's important to understand that unfortunately, because of the nature of both classified material and also, uh, the culture, people won't come on the record. Uh, it's, both political and career suicide uh, to do so. Um, but in this case, uh, you know, I, I make the point in the book of saying there is, I think, I, I believe the strongly honor in anonymity here um, because what they see is something very troubling um, and troubled and that needs to be fixed. And so I, I feel like it's less my story and more their story, if you will. 
Well, we will have to end it there for today. The book is Code Over Country, The Tragedy and Corruption of SEAL Team 6. Matthew Cole, thank you for taking time to speak with us. Thank you, John. And thank you, John. Thanks, Matthew. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive The Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For John Waters, editor David Craig, and everyone here at Real Clear Defense's Hot Wash, I'm John Sorensen.